0: Thank you so much. Thank you for those of you that are here. There are some people that were here at the very beginning. Uh, there are a few families that have been here the whole time and never left. Some have you know, gone and come back because of uh, the army. We're so thankful for the work that God's done among us. And it actually connects with our sermon today. So we're in this series that we've been running throughout the summer called Ancient Faith. And in the Ancient Faith series, we've been taking the outline of Hebrews 11 and saying, okay, let's look at these Old Testament heroes that are named in Hebrews 11 and look at how they learned to depend on God by faith. Just like us, they had to def- depend on God's provision. They had to depend on God's grace and God's kindness to them. And so we can look back and recognize they did wrong things. They, they messed up. They weren't perfect. We don't imitate everything they did, but we look back and imitate their faith. So that's what we've been doing all summer long. This week we're going to look at King David and we're calling the sermon The True King. The True King. We're going to hop and skip through 1 and 2 Samuel as I keep doing week after week. I want to encourage you to go back and read these stories for yourself. What I want to do is I want to kind of give you clues to be able to see uh, the beauties of God's grace and depending on him by faith so that you can go back and read the stories in detail for yourself and enjoy and and see what God is doing in these Old Testament stories. We're calling it the true king. And what we're going to do here is a little bit of what sometimes theologians call typology. Raise your hand if you've heard the phrase typology. Anybody heard that before? Okay, we got some theological nerds here in the house. Way to go. Um, Typology basically means you look at a character in the Bible, and that character is similar and different than Jesus, right? Hebrews does this a lot, right? Hebrews says that in Christ, we have a, a better priesthood, right? It does that very explicitly with the priesthood. It also talks about Moses and Joshua and these other Hall of Faith people in Hebrews 11. Um, It's done also in Romans chapter five. It says, we've got this first man, Adam, and then we got this new man, Jesus, who is this new Adam, a better Adam, a second Adam. He's the human that we should all be. And by faith, we can be a part of that family instead of by depending on our flesh, being uh, just living out the problems of Adam and Eve, right? And so it's done in different ways throughout the scripture. King David is a great one. He's a great figure that's supposed to remind us of the rule and reign of Jesus. So there's this one important passage, I wanna look it up to make sure I don't send you to the wrong place. It is 2 Samuel 7, and we're not gonna read that, but I'm just telling you that to write down for your further study, because you're gonna read all these things later, right? 2 Samuel 7 is where the covenant is made with King David. God makes promises to King David, and he says, someday you're gonna have a son, you're gonna have an eternal kingdom through one of your descendants, and we're told repeatedly in the New Testament, Jesus is that eternal king. And so what happens here is we're gonna look back in the Old Testament and we're gonna say, okay, there are these stories that remind us that David was the true and better king than Saul. Saul relied on his flesh and disobeyed God, but David had a heart of faith. He trusted God. And so David was the true king. But you know what? That's gonna remind us, okay, not really the true, true king. That's gonna remind us Jesus is the ultimate True King. The same thing happens in the life of the local church. It's our 15th anniversary. We celebrate what God has done among us, but we confess freely, we're broken sinners, right? To any degree that God sees faithfulness in our lives, we say that's by God's grace. And so we are just a little outpost for the True King, Jesus. 1 John 4 talks about this beautifully. It talks about the love of God being manifest in the world. It says it's not really manifest in how much we love God. It's really ultimately manifest in God giving us his son, Jesus, on the cross. That's the, that's the good news. That's the end of the story, right? The story is that we were rebels, but God loved us so much, he came after us in Christ. He laid our sins on Christ on the cross. He punished Christ instead of us, and Jesus took that punishment. He died in our place, but he rose from the dead. And the preachers in the book of Acts, the apostles would say that proved that he was the greater son of David, that he was the ultimate true king that we've all been waiting for. And so First John beautifully describes this and says, yeah, that's, that's the ultimate message of God's love being manifest among us is in the cross. But then John goes on and he says, but you know what else? No one really can see God, but people see God when he sees God's people loving each other and loving outsiders. It's this beautiful picture. So so how is the true king ultimately seen? Well, through the cross. So he's like, you know what? He's also gonna be seen through local churches as we love him, as we trust in that cross. His love will be manifest among us. So a parallel, we have local churches pointing to the true king. We have King David pointing us to the true king. So here's our, our starting point. It's in 1 Samuel 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible and turn to page 238. We've got these Bibles under the chairs, black Bibles, you can grab one of them, open up. If you don't have a Bible at home, keep that. We'd love to, to give you a Bible so that you can have one to read on your own at home and not um, be destroying your brain by reading on screens all the time. So not that screens are evil, they're just bad. That's all I mean by that. Um, so open that Bible up, 1 Samuel 16, 7. I just wanna read this one verse. This is where... David is anointed as the new true king, and it's a contrast to Saul. And what happens is God sends his prophet Samuel to go anoint the king, and he sends him to the house of Jesse, David's dad. And what Jesse does is he lines up all his beefy, big sons that are mighty warriors. They've been pumping iron. They're huge. They're ripped. They're jacked, however you want to describe this. He lines them all up, and he leaves out David. Why does he leave out David? Well, David's the youngest one and he's kind of scrawny and he's out in the field with the sheep and he doesn't really count, right? So this is a lesson in like, no, God wants that king. God wants the one who has a heart of faith. He doesn't need the one with the biggest muscles. Now later on, David grows some muscles apparently and he becomes a mighty warrior. But at this point, he's like, no, I, I wanna pick one that has a heart after me. So 1 Samuel sixteen seven, the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, do not look on his appearance or on the height of a stature Because I've rejected him. What does that mean? I've rejected him as far as stature goes, right? Like he he looks like a loser in the eyes of the world. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's like, this is the king I'm gonna choose. Now this is in contrast again to Saul. Now technically God chose Saul as well, but God chose Saul in response to the people of God wanting a fleshly, earthly Um, they wanted a king like all the other countries had. And they chose Saul, who was the tallest and the biggest in the land. And so we're supposed to see these contrasts again and again between Saul, who kind of represents us depending on ourselves, being our own God, and then David, who's depending on God, who's modeling for us faith. Now, again, we don't imitate everything that these Old Testament heroes do. David failed in big ways. We're supposed to imitate his faith. We're supposed to imitate his repentance. We're supposed to imitate him turning to God. So let me pray for us here, and then we'll look at more of these stories. Let me pray. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We confess our need of you. We confess our desire to rely on self and our strength and who we are. Uh, We confess our desire to, to rely on other powers, false gods in the world, things that become functional saviors for us. But we confess right now, we need you. You're the real savior. You're the true king. And so we ask that your spirit would be present among us, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would inform us and help us to trust you as our true king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my outline will kind of jump through First and Second Samuel. So if you want to go read all the stories, just read all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, these Old Testament books um, and they're not that long, and encourage you to read these stories. You'll, you'll find some, some adventure and some interesting stuff there. Um, but we have three-point outline. Number one, the true king refreshes. The true king refreshes. We see this in the way that David brings refreshment to Saul when Saul was descending into madness. So the true king refreshes. The second point is that the true king fights. The true king fights. We need a champion who will fight for us, and we see this in the most famous King David story when He's a little boy, or probably a teenager, and he defeats Goliath. Famous story a lot of you have probably heard before. And then finally, the true king celebrates. The true king celebrates. We see him celebrating the return of God's presence to his capital among his people. We see him rejoicing, partying, celebrating with all his might. And all these things are, again, supposed to remind us of King Jesus, the ultimate king. So first of all, the true king refreshes. We're going to look again at 1 Samuel 16. He was just anointed at the beginning of this chapter, and then later on in this chapter, we're going to see King Saul begin to descend into madness. There are a couple of difficulties we're going to have in this text, and I want to give you kind of a big picture to understand what does it look like when we turn from God. And Romans chapter 1, I think, is the best explanation of this. If you're really struggling with God's sovereignty and human responsibility and how these things work together. Romans chapter 1, I think, is a keystone passage for us to understand. It's this picture that when we rebel against God, God's wrath is not like a uh, lightning bolt that comes and zaps us, but God's wrath is actually giving us over to our desires, giving us more of what we're asking for. We say, God, I don't want you, I want to do life on my own, and God gives us over to more of that. Romans 1, 2, 3 outlines this beautifully. So now let's take that framework and look at what's happening to King Saul. In first Samuel sixteen, fourteen, it says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Both of those are very scary to us. And so a couple of different ways we can deal with this that are both based on some foundations that we know in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter one promises us that if you've believed in the good news of Jesus, and if you're trusting in him, that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity indwells you, seals you, guarantees your inheritance as his child. And you can be sure of that. We talked last week about John chapter 10, promising us that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And so there's an absolute security that we can rest in if we trust In Jesus. He's solid. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then you're like, okay, but he left Saul, right? (laughs) Like, what about this, Dave, right? So, a couple of different ways that theologians deal with this there's the discontinuity way of dealing with it and the continuity, right? So, some theologians are like, hey, Old Testament's different than the New Testament. No problem. That's their get out of jail card, free, right? Others say, well, no, God always saves the same way. We got to maintain continuity between the two places. But here's the thing just remember, The foundation is we know that if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't have to like manifest some miracles or anything to know that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Ephesians 1 says, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You have God's spirit and he will never leave you. Okay, so how do we explain what happened in the Old Testament? One of two ways. Either God really did work differently in the Old Testament, which I'm kind of doubtful of of that view, that's what I was taught growing up. I've come to the other view where I'm like, no, I think God always saved people in generally the same way think that's the theme of Hebrews 11. So I think he wasn't really a believer. I think God's spirit was just working in and around Saul, but he really never trusted God. He never really was in God's hands as a son of faith. That, that's how I understand it. I'm not sure. Here's the answer though. Trust Jesus and you won't have to worry about falling apart like Saul did. That, that's really the bottom line. What about this tormenting spirit that God sent to torment him? Again, I, I see that in context of Romans chapter 1, I say, God, I don't want you. I want the tormenting spirits of the world. And God says, Okay, here you go, which is terrifying to think about. Run to Jesus, and He will He will embrace you in his arms. So we've got this crazy picture of Saul being tormented, descending into madness. First Samuel 16, 15 says, And Saul's servants said to him, behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, and we'll seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. Uh, the lyre would have been like kind of a combination of like harp, guitar type instruments. So think of a guitar, a musical instrument. So they're saying, we can, we can find someone that will play music, and music is refreshing. We all, we all know that. And so he'll come and he'll play, and when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it, and you'll be well, you'll be whole. Things will be good with you. Verse 17, So Saul said to his servants, Provide me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who's skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him." Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. So we see David as the one who trusts God, who has the heart of faith, bringing refreshment to Saul. Another interesting thing that you need to know here is there's a word play in the Hebrew that's also present in the Greek. And that word play is the word for refreshment has the same root as the word for spirit. And throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for spirit is also the word we would use for fresh air, for oxygen. Any of you ever uh, tried to hold your breath as long as you can under the water? You ever done that before? Okay. Um, I used to do that when I was a kid, and I can just remember that that moment of like <gasps> coming up out of the water, you know, and ah, oh, feel so much better. Like you just feel like you're going to run out. Here's a picture of a kid swimming. Um, last summer, we tried to do like legitimate swimming for exercise, where I was actually doing the proper strokes, you know, not like when I was a kid and I just did cannonballs all the time. So this last summer, we were swimming, and one of the most stressful parts of it was trying to get the breathing right. Like I would be swimming and I was talking to Wally, our navigator's lead, because he used to be a swimmer. He's like, how do you do this? Because like when I turn my head, like water keeps going in my mouth and it's terrifying, right? I think I'm going to drown. And that, that feeling of not having oxygen, of not having fresh air, is kind of what's being depicted here. When you're trusting in God's spirit, that's the source of fresh air. That's the source of oxygen. That's, that's true oxygen, spiritually speaking. And when we are leaving God and wandering from him and not trusting him, we're, it's like we're drowning out of the water. We're, just, we're not getting the air that we need. We're, we're made to run on oxygen, right? And we're made to depend on God's spirit. This is made really explicit in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three. Another thing you can go read on your own time, but it's got that same word play with the spirit and the fresh wind that blows where it wants and Jesus says, you gotta be born again. You need new life. You need to come to me for life and the spirit will give you life, fresh air. It will revive you, it will refresh you. So when we look at the life of Saul, again, you kind of have to read all of First and Second Samuel to see this. We see a contrast. We see one who's trusting in himself, who's trusting in flesh, his own strength. And he's just not getting enough air and he's descending into Madness. And then we see David, again, not perfect. He sinned in big ways, but he repented and he continued to turn back to God and be revived, be refreshed himself. And then David brought refreshment to this struggling king, Saul. So again, the general comparison brings us to a general application, right? A general application is, are you gonna trust in your flesh or are you gonna trust in the reviving, refreshing spirit of the living God? You have two options laid out before you. Romans 1 says, as we trust in our flesh, God says, okay, and he gives us over to that and it does not go well. Um, the breaking of commandments, the violating of the law of God is really just a reflection of us saying, I don't trust God, I trust myself. God doesn't know what he's doing. I know better than God does. And it never goes well. It always, no, I shouldn't say always. It often goes well in the short term, right? Any of you that have walked away from God from any period of time, you're like, Well, it was fun for a little while, right? But then it got bad. Then it got really bad. And you hit rock bottom. And at any point, you can turn and say, Jesus, help me. And he will revive you. He will refresh you. We call this repentance. Repentance is just saying, sin is killing me and I need Jesus. And Jesus grabs hold of you and he will revive you. The true king will refresh you. He will give you life. He will breathe in you. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll take you in to his family. So that's, that's the big application separate, right? But then there's this kind of lower level application of just kind of how we live our lives together as believers. And this is reflected in, in how we do life together corporately. Uh, this is talked about in Ephesians chapter five. We should be like David that brings the refreshment of music into each other's lives. Um, this is metaphorical for just how we live lives in community. We should sing melodies in our heart, we're told in Colossians and Ephesians 5. So we should be the kind of people that bring the refreshment of music even if you can't sing, okay? Do you hear that? Even if you're non-musical, my family, they're all musicians. We love good music and sometimes I hear y'all and you're not good and it hurts my ears, but I'm just kidding. Sing melodies from your heart, Paul says. What he's saying is sing the gospel right? It may not be a great tune. You may not have good rhythm, but you can say, turn to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is here for you. I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you. I'll come alongside you. I'll help you. And as you do that, you're making music. That's real music, right? Now he goes on, Ephesians 5, he says, in Ephesians five 18, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be, but be filled with the Spirit instead, right? So you're struggling in life. It's been a hard 18 months, we have record numbers of mental and emotional illness and struggle happening right now, and you're tempted, and I'm tempted to go to the easy fix, to go to wine or to go to screens or to go to something addictive and say, "That'll make me feel better in the short term, but it's not going to give you the oxygen you need." So don't be filled with wine, but instead be filled with the spirit. Now just to be clear, the, the scripture doesn't say it's, it's evil to ever touch wine. it just says it's evil to be filled with it, to be controlled. By it, right? We are to be controlled and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's the contrast he's calling us to. And then he says, this is how we express it. Ephesians 5.19 says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's that sing and make that music from the heart. I was teasing you earlier for those of you that can't sing. This is what you should do. If you can't sing and we're gathered in corporate worship, you should scream. <laughs> you should scream as loud as you can. Jesus, my heart will sing no other name. Jesus, that's a prayer that we're singing to him. It's Jesus, let this be true. You're my true king. Last week, I didn't, I didn't sing your name. I was singing other Savior's names, but Jesus, let this be true my heart would sing no other name but Jesus. If you can't make melody except in your heart, then scream it at the top of your lungs. Shout it to the Lord. Because here's the thing, Chris has talked about this a lot when we discuss worship. This room is kind of arranged like a theater, right? Any of you ever been to a movie theater before? Some of you? Okay, y'all aren't very good at raising your hands. I think a lot of you have. I'm sorry, I'm just, I don't know what's wrong with me. Too much caffeine. Okay, so... The problem with arranging our room like a theater is that you think you're supposed to do what you do in a theater. What do you do in a theater? You just sit there and stare. But here Paul says in Ephesians 5, and he says this also in Colossians, there's a parallel passage. He says, no, your job is to sing to each other, right? You're singing, you're screaming, you're shouting, you're making a joyful noise. Whatever your skill level will allow, you're encouraging one another in the gospel." We encourage each other. So when people come in, they're like, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to believe in. I don't know what to trust. And we're screaming, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He will revive you. And we can be refreshing like the true King who comes to refresh us. Okay, second point. The true King fights for us. The true King fights for us. This is really the more famous story. I think this is the most famous story about King David, David and Goliath. It's in the next chapter. It's in 1 Samuel 17. I'm gonna kind of skip through it again. There is some confusing stuff here where he doesn't seem to remember where David came from or who his dad was. Um, Honestly, that makes a lot of sense. Any of you that, that have ever been a commander, right? This is an ancient king, probably knows a lot of people. I'm sure it makes sense that he's forgetting some details here. So again, modern people like to say, see, this is a contradiction. Chapter 16 and 17, don't go together. It makes sense to me that Saul would be like, now who's this guy? What is his dad's name? Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a minor thing that sometimes people worry about. But we see this bigger thing here. The main thing that the story about is about are the Philistines, are the enemies of God's people, and they send out their best fighter. And their best fighter is Goliath, who from the measurements and the calculations we can do is apparently like nine feet tall. He is a giant, legit, like bigger than, than any NFL or NBA player we would know today. He's this the serious beast, right? He's a monster. And he's like, you send your champion and we can just have champion against champion, right? We don't have to you know, have 50,000 people die on the battlefield. We can just have our best man and your best man and we can fight it out, right? Who's the best man of Israel? Do you remember, did I mention this already? How they picked Saul? What they loved about Saul? What, what was so great about Saul? He was the biggest dude in Israel. He was big, he was huge, he was jacked. He was a head taller than everybody else. And so here we've got a story of God's people led by God's king who is trusting in his flesh, not trusting in God and like, I'm a giant, but I'm not enough and I'm terrified of this monster and I can't do it on my own. There's a sense in which that's true, right? Our flesh is never enough, but it also points out to the obvious problem. Like here's the greatest hero of Israel and he's trusting in his flesh instead of trusting in God and he's afraid and he's leading God's people to be afraid. And so David shows up in this story as the one that's not really afraid. Even though, as we already saw earlier in chapter 16, he's not really that big, right? Now he is, to some extent, a fighter, right? He's got some skills and he's gonna talk about, hey, I've actually killed a bear and a lion before as a shepherd, right? So it's not like he's a complete wimp. He's not like an eight-year-old boy going out there. That's sometimes how the, how the uh, cartoons are drawn of this story. He's probably just not as big as his brothers, right? And not as big as Saul. And he's the youngest of the family and he comes out and trusts God. He trusts God. Verse 34, 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered it out of his mouth. And he arose against me. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, David said, The Lord, the God of the Old Testament, the covenant Lord, often we translate this as Yahweh or Jehovah, this God, this God who loves his people that they depended on by faith. 1 Samuel seventeen thirty-seven. This Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We see two things here. One is a common sense relying on experience, right? So there are two extremes we could go to here. We could could see this in very human terms and be like, man, if I just believe in myself, you know, like that song that Maria sings in The Sound of Music, I believe in myself, I can do anything. I can't remember that. I can't remember the details of the song. It's, it's one of the key songs of the movie. And I'm like, oh, I thought this was a Christian movie, but this is actually a humanistic believe in yourself movie. So she's like, I believe in myself. I'm awesome, right? That's what she's singing. That's not what this story is telling us to do. The story's not telling us to like march out there and be like, I'm amazing. I can do this because, you know, I killed a lion and a bear. No, he's saying, God helped me. So there is a common sense like, okay, I've, I've done some things. It's okay to consult your resume, right? I've got some skills. I've got some gifts. You're all gifted in different ways. But ultimately you're saying, but God worked through me. I was trusting in God and it's ultimately God who will give me the victory. If I'm going to have a victory today, it's because of God. So ultimately this is about his faith in God, God being the true champion. And this points, again, forward to Jesus as the ultimate champion, the one who defeats the final monster of sin and death. So number one, it's okay to have a common sense like, okay, I've seen God work in my past and I think God will be faithful now. But if you look back and you're like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, I'm new at this. I've just started to walk with Jesus. I don't, I don't really have a lot of things I can look back to in my past and say, he helped me and I, I did these things by faith and he worked through me. If you don't have that kind of resume like David did, you can say, I just know God is good and I trust him, Right? So 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the ultimate champion. This story in the Old Testament points out, really, as we read this story properly, that we're like the scared Israelites. And the monster of sin and death is overwhelming us and we can't defeat it. 1 Corinthians 15 says Jesus defeated that ultimate monster of sin and death through his death and resurrection. That resurrection is what makes him the true descendant of David, as Revelation says. The true root of David, as Revelation says. The end of Revelation chapter 22, the one who holds the key of David. He's the one who is fulfilling these promises that God made in Second Samuel 7, where God says, you're going to have a son that's going to come one day that will rule forever. who will defeat all the enemies of God's people. And so we need to make the jump to recognizing, okay, this story is supposed to point out some, some basic human things, right? That We can trust God, and we can face our giants, quote-unquote, right? Maybe that's in there, but really the ultimate thing is there's an ultimate giant, an ultimate monster that we should be afraid of, and that's sin and death. Have you done business spiritually with God? Have you recognized that, man, I'm I'm frustrated about this and that. I'm worried about the economy. I'm worried about health. I'm worried about politics. I'm worried about all these things. These monsters in the world, when we looked at the book of Daniel, it was clarified to us. Yeah, there are gonna be a lot of monsters throughout world history, but Jesus will slay them all. But the God of the universe is someone that gives us ultimate security. He is our true champion. Our king fights for us. We don't have to be afraid of all these monsters out there. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's ultimate victory. There's an ultimate monster that is your sin and my sin separating us from God for eternity, keeping us from living the life we uh, we wanna live. But as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, he forgives us, and he begins to remake us in the image of his son doesn't mean we're magically perfect and we do everything right from that day on, but we stumble forward following Jesus and he teaches us to trust him and to obey him and to live life his way. And as we do that, then we can begin to refresh others the way that we saw in the life of David. So our true king fights for us and he fights the ultimate monster, which is sin and death. And so Paul takes this and he gives application in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, So then the application is, now be like David. Don't be afraid of the giants because Jesus defeated the ultimate giant. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain if your labor is for Jesus and by Jesus and in the name of Jesus. We have a congregation mostly full of soldiers, and you've given your lives to push back evil in the world. And this has been a really hard week. I've, I've prayed and counseled with a lot of you about just the, the pain and the disgust of everything that's going on in Afghanistan right now. And I, I want you to know, this is probably about as bad as it gets, right? But our lives will be filled with these ups and downs where we gave ourselves to something and we labored and we served And we spent blood and sweat and tears in the name of Jesus to try to help others. And we'll see significant gains. We'll see people thriving and we'll celebrate that short-term fruit. But then we'll also see significant losses. And we'll feel at times like life is meaningless and everything that we did didn't matter. And what Paul is saying is recognize that the ultimate monster is sin and death. And if you entrust yourself to him, and that is your security, then that's gonna give you the strength to be steadfast and immovable in the day-to-day in the little things of, of loving your neighbor, teachers, teaching kids, trying to help kids move forward, trying to stop evil men in the world, doing these little things we do to try to make a difference in this world. We know ultimately that if we've devoted ourselves to Jesus, that, that God will do something with that, that our labor is not in vain. So we will continue to do tasks of serving others in our community, in our families, in our world, knowing that the short-term results will be up and down. Some years we'll see a great yield on what we've done. Other years we'll feel like not a lot has happened. But we'll also speak the words of Jesus. We'll say he's he's our only hope. He's the one that has defeated the monster of sin and death. Okay, last point. The true king celebrates this story's kind of crazy, uh, <laughs> cool stuff here. This is, we're gonna skip ahead to 2 Samuel now into to 2 Samuel chapter six, if you wanna follow along. I'm gonna try to retell a lot of it, read some of it. But the true king celebrates, I wrestled with the best way to say this, the true king rejoices God's presence among us. The true king parties that God is with us. At Christmas time, we celebrate this name of Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. Last week, we talked about one of the most common promises that God gives us is He says, I will be with you, right? And one of the ways that He manifested His presence symbolically in the Old Testament is through the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this golden box that housed the Ten Commandments. It housed other tokens of God's provision, the the manna and the staff and things like this that reminded God's people that He was with them, that He was their Savior, We've talked about this all summer long. God's people are the people that God has saved. That's our identity in the Old Testament and the New. Are things different in the Old and New? Yes. But there are some important things that are the same. We will always be God's saved people and our identity comes from him. And so his presence was manifested through this golden box, pillar of fire, cloud of smoke. It would come down and show its presence over the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the Old Testament tent where they would set up this and they would have the sacrifices that would teach God's people that nothing could bring us into the presence of God except these perfect sacrifices, which are supposed to remind us of Jesus. And this would be like his throne where he would come and sit and be the king living among God's people. So all that is background. This golden box, the ark of God's presence had been stuck in this other town. They'd had an accident, trying to move it into the capital city of Jerusalem. Didn't go well. They were starting all over again. That's where we pick up the story here in 2 Samuel six twelve. He told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Okay, first spot, he's rejoicing, right? Verse 13, keeps going. When those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Okay, so every six steps, right? It's traveling from one town to the next. He's making it really slow, okay? Now, part of this was because they'd messed up before. They'd violated God's holiness before in previous time. And that's why the box, the ark got stuck in Obed-Edom's town. So now they're moving it. He's going to make a sacrifice every six steps, right? Here's one of the beautiful things about the sacrificial system. When you read the Old Testament law, the sacrifices that they would make would often then be eaten. It was like a giant barbecue fellowship meal. It was a rejoicing together, worshiping God's goodness and making sacrifices to bring us into his Presence. And so now they're doing this as they move the ark into Jerusalem. Verse 14: And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. What does that mean? It just really means he was wearing like street clothes. Um, Some translate this as like underwear, probably better to just be like he was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, you know? He's just kind of wearing regular clothes. He wasn't wearing fancy king clothes. He's the king, remember? At this point, he's now the king. He was just wearing regular clothes. Okay, and then we go on. It says in verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord, were shouting with the sound of the horn. Okay, so there's a rock band accompanying as well. David was famous for hiring thousands and thousands of instrumentalists and singers. They would blast the worship of God to the nations. Verse 16, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, it's interesting. She's David's wife. So why did it say daughter of Saul? The author's trying to put a little separation in here. Like, she's, she's kind of on Saul's team, right? Saul's defeated and he's king now, but she's, she's despising God's anointed one, David. So there are all these little narrative clues that are setting up like, okay, she's she's not trusting what God's doing through David. She's she's kind of on the wrong team here. She's despising his worship. She's despising his leaping, his dancing, his breaking of social conventions. She's despising his worship of the Lord. Verse 17, they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So more of these offerings, more of the celebration. Verse 18, when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. So it's this huge celebration, right? They're, they're giving him food and meat and cakes and desserts. It's this incredible celebration of God's presence among his people, as symbolized in the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 20, David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Uh, So she's. this is sometimes translated in older translations as if he's naked, uncovering himself. But again, this is just, he's not wearing the king's finery. He's not being fancy, he's humbling himself. And again, this reminds us of our humble, true king, Jesus. Philippians 2 says, In ultimate humility, he didn't hold on to his equality with God and his position in heaven, but came to earth and took on the form of a servant. He was obedient even to the point of death. So again, even this should remind us of our true, ultimate king who humbled himself to serve us and to celebrate God's presence as Emmanuel among us. Jesus makes very clear that he is the true temple. This is the old shadow of God's presence. Jesus is the reality of God's presence among us. And so we see King David and our true King Jesus, not not being fancy, not looking like we expect a king to look, but celebrating in humility. Verse 21, David answers, Michael, it was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. This is the older translation of the ESV. They changed it to make it sound more modern to celebrate. Uh, I will make Mary before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? It's kind of weird, archaic language. But again, it's kind of reinforcing this concept of, of we're called on and the true king is called on to celebrate God's presence among his people, that God would make his home with us. I hope that never ceases to amaze you. That's at the heart of our relationship with God. We have a God who saw us in a rebellion and in our sin, and he didn't just leave us there. He came after us in Christ. And that's what this story is about. He said, I'll make myself more contemptible, contemptible than this, and I'll be abased in your eyes. It goes on to spell out that clearly David was in the right, Michael was in the wrong. It was right that David would celebrate God's presence with his people. And, and this is a beautiful example for us as well. We should celebrate God's presence with us. One of my favorite illustrations of this concept is from the movie Babe. Anybody seen the movie Babe about the pig? Great movie, great spiritual lessons in this movie. Um, I grabbed a screenshot of the scene where the shepherd, he dances For his little pig that he's trying to train to be a sheepdog, right? His pig is sick, um, and so he's reviving, he's refreshing the pig by singing and dancing for him. It's such a beautiful picture. And again, as you see these stories, just like when you look at the David and Goliath story, you shouldn't see yourself as David defeating giants. You should see yourself as Israel afraid of the giants and needing a champion to save you. Well, in the same way, when you watch the movie Babe, you shouldn't see yourself as the shepherd dancing for the pig. You should see yourself as the pig, right? I see myself as the pig. I see myself as the little one that's sick, stuck on the couch, but I've got a shepherd, a true king that comes to me in love. Zephaniah 3.17 says this so clearly. He is a mighty one to save. He is the great and mighty warrior. He's the champion that's defeated sin and death. And what does he do? He delights in us. He rejoices over us with loud, singing. He quiets us with his love. If if you think the gospel is, I will earn my place in God's family, you're sadly mistaken. The gospel is God comes to us by his grace and for his glory, and he revives us, and he adopts us into his family. So we see this beautiful picture of David celebrating God's presence among his people, which reminds us of Jesus who celebrated God's presence among his people in, in his own self as the true king, right? Jesus was always getting into trouble because he would party with sinners. Go back and read the gospels. The religious people never liked how much Jesus liked sinners like you and me. They didn't like that. And so we've, we've really got to clarify in our own minds that whenever we gather as God's people to formally celebrate God's presence among us, we should be thinking of it more in terms of the parties that Jesus was having with sinners. Do you see that? God made his presence manifest among us by his grace because he defeated sin and death for us. And so it's us trusting in what he's done that allows us to celebrate his presence among us. And so our gatherings should never be about keeping the bad guys out, right? Our gatherings should always be about inviting everyone in. It's a very important distinction, thinking back on the history of Grace Bible Church over 15 years. It's a distinction that we started with and we will end with, that church is not just for believers, and church is not just for unbelievers. Church is for both. It's for believers saying, yeah, I used to be an unbeliever, and God makes his presence among us as sinners. And the only reason I'm in God's family is because God is gracious, right? And so we're constantly inviting others in. We see this through the book that David is the the main author for, the book of Psalms, God's worship book, always inviting the nations to come to God. That's who we are. Our, Our identity as God's people is both. We're both the people who realize God's presence among us by grace. We belong to him. We're in his family. We used to be out of his family. Now we're in his family. That's real. That, that transition, that change has taken place. But we're also eager to see him continue to invite more in. So how do we live this out in our lives? Well, first of all, as I said already, as we worship, we recognize, man, I only worship by God's grace because God has come to me, not because I've, I've worked my way to God. But we also invite outsiders in. That can be through acts of service. That can be through hospitality. That can be through just genuinely being interested in loving and serving our unbelieving friends. Does your life look more like Jesus who partied with sinners? And again, be careful about the word party, right? There's a a partying that goes too far. Jesus who celebrated God's presence with sinners, who embraced and loved and showed hospitality to sinners or does your life look like the Pharisees? They were like, man, we, we don't like them. We, we want to separate from them. They're disgusting. We can't stand to be around them. Luke 15 is the best place to go to see this dynamic in Jesus lived out. I want to conclude here. Uh, we've run out of time. The last story that you should read on your own time is about Mephibosheth. You can find most of it in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But Mephibosheth was a grandson of Saul. And so David's king now. They've had a civil war. And David says, you know what? I want to see if there are any remaining descendants of Saul and Jonathan, my friend. He was friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They'd have a covenant together. He says, I want to show kindness to them. And this, again, is a model of our true king. His his assistants are thinking, well, that's that's crazy. They They could lead a revolt. We need to kill them all, right? That's military strategy. And he's like, no, I want to show kindness to them. They find this guy named Mephibosheth who is lame in both feet, we're told. He's injured, he cannot farm, he cannot fight. He's afraid that David's gonna wanna kill him. And what does David do? David adopts him into his family, and he eats at David's table. It's a picture of us. Again, uh, we're not the dancing shepherd, we're the pig. We're not David the champion, we're the, the fearful Israelites. And in this final story, 2 Samuel 9, we're not the great king, we're the injured member of the enemy's household who's adopted by grace and gets to sit at the king's table and enjoy restored fellowship with him because of what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you invite us into your family. Help us to grapple with these things. There's, there's too much, but we see again that, that you're the true king. And so Lord, help us to grow as followers of you, that we would trust in you, that we would manifest your presence by your grace and for your glory. We pray that you would work through us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.